Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. There's a verse in the gospel reading this morning, which we just read, that I want to begin with. Uh, John 14, verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. When my grandfather, my dad's dad, died, my dad was nearly 60. My grandmother, my dad's mom, had died when I was just eight years old, so quite a while ago. But I remember something my dad said to me shortly after his dad had passed away. He said that now that both his parents were gone, he felt adrift, like the foundation he'd been resting on was suddenly gone. And that surprised me a little at the time. It seemed odd to me that my dad, who had adult children of his own and grandchildren and is very established and rooted in his life in other ways, would feel that way, set adrift, disconnected. But as I thought about it, it did start to make sense. Even as a 50-something-year-old man, my dad felt orphaned in a way. I thought about how I would feel whenever both of my parents are gone. Hopefully many years away yet, but I could start to imagine what that might feel like. I realized that so much of my own sense of myself and of my place in the world um, has to do with the sort of fundamental knowledge that my parents are still alive, still a generation above me, in ways I had never really been conscious of before. And I've since learned that this is a very common phenomenon. I'm sure many of you have already experienced this or felt this in different ways. And of course, some people lose their parents uh, much younger. Others have a difficult relationship with their parents, so that even though their parents may still be alive, that relationship is not a source of stability or connection, but maybe of pain and disconnection. All of us, whatever shape our lives have taken, will find at various times and in various ways that the cords that bind us to this world are suddenly severed, leaving us bereft, alone, disconnected. We're left like boats on a choppy sea, suddenly without an anchor, left to be tossed around by the waves, not sure how to navigate, not even sure which direction is which. Well, the disciples in our gospel reading this morning are feeling a little bit this way. Our gospel comes from Jesus' upper room discourse, as it did last week also. The gospel of John chapters 13 all the way through chapter 17 are set in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples. And most of these chapters are Jesus' final words to his disciples before he goes out to the Mount of Olives to pray and, as he knows, to his death. And much of what Jesus says to his disciples in these chapters is addressing their anxieties at Jesus' coming departure. 
He tells them back in chapter 13, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, but where I am going, you cannot come. Well, the disciples hardly understand this. (laughs) They don't really understand yet that he is about to die or that he will be raised again from the dead in three days, even though he has told them these things. They certainly don't understand what he means when he says he is about to leave them. But it sets off all their fears and all their questions. Listen to their questions in these chapters. Peter says in chapter 13, Lord, where are you going? And then, why can I not follow you now? It sounds a little like our daughter, Rosie, whenever Jenny is getting ready to leave the house. Mom, where are you going? And of course, can I come with you? And also, when's mom coming home? (laughs) (sighs) The disciples ask each other, What does he mean by a little while? Thomas asks, Lord, how can we know the way to where you are going? All of these questions are coming from their sudden anxiety that Jesus is about to leave them. Philip says, show us the Father, as if to say, if you're not going to be here, show us the Father. Don't leave us alone. The disciples feel unmoored. If Jesus goes... They are adrift. Everything they have come to believe in will come to nothing. The world will cease to make sense. They will no longer know what to do with themselves. And they don't even know yet about the terrible confusion and anguish of the coming hours and days when Jesus will be taken from them, tortured and then killed, and when they themselves will abandon him. So in these chapters, Jesus, in his kindness, takes time to comfort them and to reassure them. Much of what Jesus says in these chapters is concerned with uh, how Jesus' disciples will remain in communion with him, even after he himself is no longer physically present with them. He's talking to them, really, as we'll see, about the reality of the church, They can't possibly understand his words to them now, not fully, but they will remember them later. And this brings us back to where we started, orphans. I will not leave you as orphans, he says. It's almost as if he's saying, I wouldn't do that to you. (laughs) I have a plan. And incredibly, he will say later, it's actually better for them that he goes away. And that plan that he lays out really is the foundation for what we have today here, the church. There are two ways in this passage that Christ promises to be with his disciples even after he himself is gone, uh, physically. And they are also, I think, the primary themes of the entire upper room discourse, as it's called, this long talk that he's giving them. They are first, the Holy Spirit, or as he's called here, the paraclete. And we'll talk about what that means. And second, the resurrection life of Jesus. 
the disciples will be joined up into the very life of God himself. So first, the Holy Spirit. Look in verses 16 and 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit is a great theme in Jesus' upper room talk with the disciples. He is called the paraclete. It's the word that gets translated a lot of different ways in our English Bibles. Our translation this morning here has the word advocate, which is certainly true. But other translations have things like the comforter, the counselor, the helper, and even the intercessor. All of these ideas are part of what this word paraclete means. And so what's tricky here is that by picking any one of them, our translations inevitably have to leave out all the other ones. That's why some Bibles have just chosen to leave it as paraclete, to keep its sort of inherent strangeness, and let the rest of Jesus' teaching in this passage explain to us what this word means. I'm not sure what's the best option for translating the word. My job is not to translate it, but to preach it. The idea is this. Both Jesus and his Father will together send their spirit to the disciples. And this spirit will, it says, help them and be with them forever. Remember, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one God. Anything that any one of the three persons does, the others do too. So even though Jesus will be absent from his disciples in the flesh, he will be present with them by his Spirit. If the Holy Spirit will be with the disciples forever, then Jesus will too. The Spirit is called the Comforter. That's one of the ways the word paraclete gets translated. It's probably my own favorite, just for personal reasons. But all of us who have walked through grief know that the first and best way to comfort someone is simply to be with them. Sometimes it's best not to say anything at all. Sometimes our simple presence is really what's needed. So while yes, as we'll see in just a second, the Spirit will say things too, the first way he will minister to the disciples is simply by being with them, always. Jesus tells his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How? By his Holy Spirit, who will be with them. But Jesus does get more specific about what exactly the Spirit will do. Later in chapter 14, verse 26, um, that's after our reading this morning, Jesus promises that the Spirit will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. He will, Jesus says, lead you into all the truth. A chapter later, in chapter 15, Jesus says that the Spirit will testify about me. Throughout the New Testament, that is always what the Holy Spirit is doing. He is constantly and in every way bearing witness to Jesus. The great reformer Martin Luther has a wonderful line about this, which I'm pretty sure I've quoted in a sermon before, and I'm sure I will again. But Luther says this, We cannot preach anything at all 
but Jesus Christ and the faith. The poor Holy Spirit knows nothing else. The poor Holy Spirit knows nothing else. This is some characteristic Lutheran humor here. But there is, of course, nothing else worth knowing, really, besides Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And that is why the Spirit constantly bears witness to Jesus. One of the primary ways the Spirit will do this is by inspiring the apostles to understand and proclaim the faith truly. Right now, the apostles are sitting around the table listening to Jesus, confused and afraid, not really understanding what he's telling them very well, but that will all change. The Holy Spirit will descend on them, and their Spirit-inspired preaching will become the kernel of the Christian faith. Recorded in the Christian creeds, passed down faithfully, down through all the generations of the faithful, all the way down to us today. The Spirit would also inspire these apostles to write the New Testament scriptures. And then by those inspired scriptures, the Spirit will lead the people of God into all truth. And not only the first Christians, but all Christians. Since then, in all languages, in all places, in all cultures, all around the world, The scriptures are the primary way God has ordained the Holy Spirit to lead the disciples into all truth. Not the only way, but the primary way. While he is with them in the the flesh, Jesus can teach his disciples and guide them into the truth. But while he's in his physical body, he can only be in one place at one time. When the Spirit comes, the truth can go out into the world in a new and powerful way. And it is after Jesus ascends to heaven and the Spirit descends that we see the message proclaimed all all over the world. Notice, too, that while Jesus is with them, the disciples are always slow to understand all that Jesus is teaching them. It's a theme of the Gospels. The disciples never quite get it. It is only when the Spirit comes that the penny will drop and they will begin to put everything together. So Jesus will be present with his disciples by his Holy Spirit. But there's another great theme in these verses uh, and in these chapters, which we see here in our short gospel reading today. Not only will Jesus and the Father send the Holy Spirit to the disciples, the disciples themselves will be joined up in the very resurrection life of Jesus. So they will be gathered up into the very life of God himself. Look in verses 18 and 19. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Because I live, you also will live. The same life that is in Jesus, the same life that raised Jesus from the dead, and broke the power of the grave, is now in Jesus' disciples too. It's like the apostle Paul will write to the Galatians. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. 
you have been baptized, you have been drowned, killed, put to death, and then raised up to new life, the resurrection life of Jesus. Our life is now Christ's life. And what that means is that, as Jesus says here in John 14, Jesus is in the Father, and we are in him, and he is in us. Because we now live with the resurrection life of Jesus, we now participate in the life of God in the Holy Trinity. If Jesus is in his Father, then so are we. This is also what Paul will mean when he writes that we are in Christ. For you have died, Paul says, and your life is now hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is a major theme for the Apostle John, not only in his gospel, but in his letter, the letter of 1 John 2. For John, we do not only imitate Jesus, We participate in his very life, and so also in the life of the Father and of the Spirit, too. Jesus' disciples are worried that they will be left alone. They will be left as orphans. But nothing could be further from the truth. Christ will send them his Spirit to comfort them and to guide them into all the truth. And by his resurrection, Christ will join them to himself, and through him also to the Father, so that they will participate in God's own eternal life. In these chapters, Jesus is really describing the church, the time and the era that we live in today. Everything Jesus is talking about in these verses is fulfilled in the church. At Pentecost, Jesus' promise to the disciples will be fulfilled. The Holy Spirit will fall on them, And filled with the Holy Spirit, they will proclaim the gospel with great power and authority. Not only to Jews, but to people from all over the world, in their own languages. And the apostles' spirit-filled preaching will become the foundation of the church. Eventually, it will be written down and become our New Testament scriptures. When Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, he is not just talking to the confused and frightened disciples sitting around him in the upper room. He's also talking to us today. The same promises he made to them, he makes now to us. Even though we feel like it sometimes, we are not orphans. Our Lord is still with us, and these promises are fulfilled to us today in the church. One of the great ethical themes of the Bible is God's commandment that we should always care for orphans and widows. It's a consistent refrain in the Old Testament law and in the prophets, and it's taken up again in the New Testament. The Apostle James writes in his letter, religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James actually says that true religion can be summed up as caring for orphans and for widows. One of the clearest identifying marks of the people of God 
is that they will find those people whose bonds to the world have been severed. Those people who have in many ways been disconnected from society, who are adrift, and will invite them in, into a rooted, established community, and offer them new bonds, stronger bonds, new connections, new and deeper roots. It is a fundamental characteristic of the Christian faith that it takes orphans and gives them a home. Not only literal orphans, all those who are cut off and disconnected. A sinful society, and we live in one, constantly breaks down the bonds by which God meant to tie us to one another. A sinful society isolates people. It breaks apart families and communities. It tells us the lie that we can live on our own, that we do not need one another. The healing work of God's people, of true religion, as the Apostle James puts it, is to invite all people back into the strong community of faith. All this goes back to Jesus' promise, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What Jesus is offering to his disciples in these chapters will create the kind of community that can be a home to all kinds of orphans. It is because Christ comes to us by his spirit and invites us into his own divine life that we can invite others into it as well. And that community is the church. The church is the place where orphans of all kinds can find a home. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.